What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Hi, it's me again, Jamie Tarabay. And you're listening to a bonus episode of Foundering. In April 2023, we put on a live show at RSA in San Francisco. It's one of the biggest cybersecurity conferences in the world. I did a live reading of the first episode of the John McAfee story. And then we did a Q&A with one of the people who was featured in that episode. Look out for a recording of the live show on Bloomberg.com. For now, though, I wanted to share the Q&A. You're going to hear from Alan Liska. He's an author and expert in cybersecurity who had some interesting things to say about the impact McAfee had on the industry. I also talk a little bit about my reporting process for this show. And the moderator you'll hear is Foundering's editor, Mark Millian. Thank you for listening to the series, and I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Hey, everyone. I'm Mark Millian. Um, I edit Foundering. I'm also the slideshow operator. Alan, I wanted to start with you. You had this very memorable quote in the, uh, in the episode, buy my thing instead. Um, can you expand on that? Like, how did McAfee shape today's approach to digital security? I love that we're, we're, we're highlighting that quote at RSA, which is the biggest buy my thing convention for security community in the world. Please don't throw tomatoes at me. Um, <laughs> uh, well, sure. I mean, so think of it now. CISA now has an initiative um, out there to build better and more secure software, to mandate that software is more built, uh, is more secure and built. And that is 40 years after, um, you know, McAfee launched his antivirus program. So we're still, we're just now catching up to that, but that has been the model in security forever. And in a lot of ways, it makes us less secure. So if I walk into any company right now, um, they have antivirus and they have EDRs, they have endpoint protection. They, they probably have three or four different agents on, their, their, on each individual endpoint. Then you have your web application firewall, your firewall, your IDS, your uh, mail security program, and so on. So you have, uh, you, know, you walk into an organization and you have a hundred different security tools, a hundred different consoles, and yet things like ransomware, which is where I specialize, are running rampant because we can't seem to stop it because there's too much. And the, the one thing that caught the ransomware actor is the one console you haven't looked at this week. And so um, we, we've made it much more complex to operate a secure environment. Um, Jamie, you talk in the recorded version of this episode about your background and career, um, a long time foreign correspondent and conflict reporter. <clears throat> um, how did that context shape how you, how you thought about approaching a story like McAfee's? Um, 
I mean, I think one of the things that he, not, not to say that he was like a dictator or a terrorist or anything, but, uh, but he, he did have a lot of things in common with those sorts of um, men, which is there's a lot of ego and there's a lot of a greater sense of unaccountability and, um, you know, the vanity that comes with um, being the leader. And what we found at in, in our reporting is that he managed to continue to build these small worlds where he was in charge and um, and you know it was just a lot of the similar kind of characteristics of that sort of behavior and personality the cult of personality was definitely uh, present in a lot of McAfee's life and um, through a lot of the people that we spoke to I mean I, I see in your reporting almost a direct through line from like John McAfee to Elon Musk I mean that you see a lot of similarities um, in that kind of cult, cult of personality and and you know the the I'm in charge and running things and so I think there but I think that not just those two but I think there's right. a lot of that in general in tech for worse often yeah that's uh, I think a, a through line of the series as Jamie talked in the beginning you know Adam Newman to even even Jeff Bezos is it's uh, there are some common traits that exist between these leaders. Um, Alan, clearly McAfee's work had an impact on the security industry. Do you think his personality shaped the business at all? Like his boosterism and salesmanship and antagonism and paranoia, like is that reflected in today's companies or CEOs? I, I mean, and, and I love this company, so I'm gonna pick on them, but, um, but Go downstairs and look at the CrowdStrike booth and the fact that they have 10-foot-tall action figures of adversaries. I mean, that is great company, but, but yeah, that, that, that sort of, oh, these are really scary um, things that you have to fight. And, and they are. Like, it is a real problem. It is a real threat. But, but we, 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 we do have this almost fetish, fetishization, if that's a word, of, of the adversary rather than sort of taking a a more fact-based look at things. So, so I do think that that, that that is absolutely the case. And there have been, and I think this is in any industry, but in particular to the areas where McAfee was in, technology and then uh, cryptocurrency later, um, because it's areas that a lot of people don't understand, you do get some charlatans in there. You do get some companies that kind of build everything, and I'm not saying McAfee did this, but are able to build their whole company on lies, essentially. Uh, Jamie, one thing we established in the episode we just heard um, and make very clear throughout the series um, is that McAfee is a controversial figure. Um, what were some of the most surprising things you learned about him during your reporting? Um, I think one of, one of the challenges was figuring out what was actually real and and you know it we 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 had to go back to a time that was pre-internet, and you know a lot of those work experiences that we talked about, um, the employment history we couldn't verify so many of them because they went back to the 60s, um, and beforehand, and so that was really frustrating. One of the things that I thought was really telling that we everyone that we spoke to who was close to him sort of began with this. Oh, he was so great. He was such a smart person. He was brilliant. He was the love of my life. Even, yeah, the ex-wives. Yeah, and then it was, oh, he was horrible. And 
um, you know, he cheated on me or he betrayed me or did this. And then by the end, it was like, he was the worst. So you people just kind of went through this whole journey of how they felt about him. But their immediate recollections were that he was this positive person on their lives. And then, then they remember, oh, no, actually, he kind of, you know, destroyed me. So, <laughs> I mean, that was really surprising that it was it wasn't just one or two people. It was nearly everyone we spoke to. Um, I want to give uh, people a chance to ask questions. We've got a couple of microphones in the room. Um, you're welcome to uh, step up and uh, ask your own questions. Um, Alan, something that McAfee talked about, especially later in his life, was this push and pull between security and privacy. Um, I think this was, for him personally, often in the context of not paying taxes and a sort of creative interpretation of privacy as like a license to break the law. Um, but this theme of safety versus privacy, um, civil liberties, is a pretty relevant one today, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, 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 the, the FBI and the Department of Justice is trying to figure out, still trying to figure out how to find backdoors into encryption tools and, and so on, and, and considers that to be really important without any actual evidence that having those backdoors would actually help them solve cases um, faster. Uh, you know, the, 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 just a couple of years ago, the, you know, the, the fight between Department of Justice and Apple over, hey, are you gonna help us jailbreak this phone? And no, we're not. And, and yeah, it, it's a real challenge. And you know, as somebody in the security industry, I think privacy is really important. I think we shouldn't be giving governments backdoors to uh, to encryption algorithms and you know giving them access to these kind of databases because if one if country one country has access, then essentially all countries have access to it. Uh, it's funny you bring up the San Bernardino example because yes. in our suit, McAfee yeah. like inserts himself into the story. Uh, yeah try to bring the attention back to himself, of yeah. course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that was a great example of he always had to kind of be front and center on the story. So yes, absolutely. But he's also really smart about like the zeitgeist, right? He knew where and what. And that, I mean, like I kind of felt by the end that he should have really just chosen a career in Hollywood because he was so good at um, figuring out how to use fear and uh, and and sort of what, what it was that... Um, what, that drew attention, and, and he was really—he just knew. He understood people so well, um, and because you know, so much of what he did was so fantastical. I really thought that Hollywood would have been his true home. Yes, he was very but charismatic. He let them miss Absolutely, out. he would have made billions producing movies and so on. Update war games only instead of uh, you know just a, just a basic computer. It's now a government-funded AI that um, uh, is starting World War III, right? I mean, you know, that would have been the perfect movie for him. Um, Jamie McAfee associated with some pretty shady characters. Um, you, you talked about how separating fact from fiction was a challenge in your reporting. Um, what other sorts of reporting challenges did this create for you? I mean, the, the shady characters, unreliable narrators, that was... Um, what? Not me. I'm not one of the shady no, characters. No, 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 you are not an unreliable. But I, I think it was really hard to find someone who was connected in some way with him who could be truly honest and, and you know, really just sort of call it what it was. And, and that was always really hard. And whenever we would sort of say to someone, well, apparently there's video of you doing this. I'm like, no, it's not true. It never happened. <laughs> so that was always 
a challenge. And I think at least one of our interviewees um, had an ankle bracelet for a while, so that was also <laughs> yes. challenging. You know, it's interesting uh, to prep for this. I, I grabbed, uh, I ordered a couple of uh, biographies on McAfee. And when you start reading through the biographies, I guess the people that he would allow in to write biographies were also kind of self-serving and shady. And I'm reading the biography and I'm like, this is more about you and how great you are as a biographer. And I'm like, um, all right, well, uh, but, but, you know, I, I do think he did foster that kind of environment, uh, especially later in life, which I thought was interesting. He was really good at co-opting media. Really, really, really good at it. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Um, we have a question from the audience. Could you identify yourself? Yeah, oh, my name is Rashmita. I'm a cybersecurity architect in MetLife. We met last month. You might not remember, remember me, but I remember you. Uh, <laughs> but Jamie, you're an amazing storyteller. Um, I'm just curious to know, how did you come to the title, Foundering? Uh, especially when you mentioned that so many times you came across during your interviews that he's not necessarily a leader, uh, not necessarily sure. somebody who would put the company together to, ne- to, to take it to the next step. So was there any struggle about coming to this title? What solidified the title? I'm going to defer to at least one person in the room who came up with that title. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, a, Redstone. <laughs> it's a title for uh, a series we've been doing for a few years where, I mean, it's like a, a double meaning that we're playing off of founder because it's the founder of a company, but foundering also refers to a ship that's sinking. So um, oftentimes these entrepreneurial stories, um, there's some great challenges. In our first subject, which uh, Ellen, here, uh, Ellen Hewitt from Bloomberg was a host of. Um, we focused on Adam Newman from WeWork, who was definitely foundering and then sank. Um, not all of our subjects uh, sank entirely. Some got to leave on their own terms, like Jeff Bezos, who Brad Stone, the host of that series, is here too. So yeah, that was the story behind the title. Uh, another question from the audience? Uh, I was wondering if you thought more about kind of the kernel of his brilliance so we heard about different aspects of what made him successful, his salesmanship, um, the relationships he developed. But what was, what was at the start of his success in building his company? Was there some sort of technical brilliance or was it more um, smoke and mirrors? I mean, according to the interviews that we did, the product was like good. Um, there was a whole controversy about whether he even like created it himself or whether one of the programmers that he employed did it and it's a rabbit hole like it really I even heard from one person that I spoke to that when he was working at Lockheed Martin one of his colleagues at Lockheed Martin had actually came up with it and John had stolen it from him and then went in so I mean this is why I said it was so hard to verify exactly what was happening but what we do know for sure is that Dennis Yell 
um, the computer programmer who worked with McAfee was instrumental in um, in sort of creating that first version. Um, and and, it, and it obviously it fit a need, but I, I don't really know much about fighting viruses back then. But yeah. they they were like for specific viruses, right? So you right. had to constantly iterate and find new solutions. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, so what you were looking at in back in the early '80s was you had two: you had McAfee and you had Norton, and then you had a whole bunch of scammy. Uh, 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 pretend antivirus programs that didn't actually do anything. Um, just kind of like now, actually. Um, but, um, but yeah, and, and you know, basically the way it worked was it was entirely a subscription model. They would identify a new virus and then they would add, uh, and they would add it to the signature. So it was all signature based. Um, and that was kind of the brilliance of it. When you're only dealing with one virus a month or one mutation of a virus a month, you can add new signatures monthly and do pretty well. And so they were able to stay ahead of it. The problem was when you moved from that one a month to, you know, hundreds of variations a day, then it became much, much more difficult to keep up. But yes, in the, in the early eighties and mid eighties, um, McAfee and Norton were your options for better, uh, for, for, for better, you know, internet security and to protect you from these viruses that were a real problem. I think the, uh, the question of who programmed it is like similar to the sort of like Steve Jobs versus Steve Wozniak like debate, which is who, who was the genius? And I think they were, they were both geniuses and like, McAfee's ability to to market the to create the Ghostbusters van and drive it to the sites and like go on TV and get people interested and scare everyone about the Michelangelo virus like <laughs> that was an effective you know he created an industry that's like pretty amazing well and we see that even today there are incident response companies that have like their promotional incident response truck like like you know it looks like a an ambulance or or, or something like that. So that, that again, when we talk about through lines, that that continues through um, uh, where, where where they have that ability. Alan, how unique of a figure do you think McAfee was? Um, like, have you come across other McAfees during the course of your time? Was or is? Um, so I think in 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 the early cybersecurity industry, I think he was fairly unique. I do think there are. Maybe with less cocaine, although I'm not at the CEO level, so I could be completely wrong about that. Um, uh, I, I think there are, we still see them pop up, the, the, the type of salesman. You, you, you have to, especially if you're a startup, you have to be a bit of a salesman to sell your product, right? Um, and, and, and McAfee did make a good product, um, but, but I do think we have a lot of the people who are more of the, Salespeople without the good product behind it um, in, in in security industry again because it is such a complex industry. But but I think the best CEOs also have to be able to sell their product. I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, as a technical person, I get all queasy and uncomfortable around selling stuff. But you can't do that as a CEO. So um, we have a question from my boss, Brad Stone. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I would encourage everybody to listen to the podcast. It's, it's really crazy. But in particular, uh, the last episode is wild because McAfee authors this incredible last chapter where he runs for president, he gets into crypto, and he gets arrested, and then he dies under mysterious circumstances. So I'm wondering, you know, Jamie, what did you end up concluding about this last chapter in his life? 
and, and, and the mysterious, somewhat mysterious circumstances of his death. And then, Alan, one for you is like, why do you think we're still talking about John McAfee? Why does he continue to resonate in this industry? I, I mean, I, I, try and just, I really struggle with this because it, it's really hard to sort of imagine a 70-odd-year-old man running around the world rather than, like, pay taxes. <laughs> like, I just, I couldn't understand why he felt he had to react so extremely to something like that. And, uh, and all I could think was it was his narcissism and his ego and this, con- this idea, this belief that he had that people cared about him, you know, and that without his online audience or his fans or whenever he would go to these conferences and speak, he was... You know, in Alan, Alan, you saw him speak in a couple of places as well. Um, that you know, he had this adulation, and I don't know. I, it, I I was really. It just seems like the most obvious thing is just go to court. But that's the, he's never done that. He had all of these instances where he was meant to go to court to face up to charges, and he just point blank refused to. And I think that if you entrench yourself in your position so stubbornly. I think 75-year-olds can be stubborn, um, then, you know. But I, I, and then I think the, the, the sort of the conspiracy around his death was just part of fomenting and making sure that he could do what he could to, to keep his name out there as long as possible. Um, I mean, it, it's really an exercise in, in just, like, extreme narcissism. But, but a lot of people, you know, bought into it. We, we, we get a lot of reactions still online to, to, to the story that he's not dead, so that's yeah. always fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, you look at the contrast between John McAfee and Peter Norton. Does anybody know what Peter Norton's doing these days? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a guy who paid his taxes, made his money, and, uh, you know, is, is off doing whatever. Um, and we talk about him because... He wanted to be in the public eye, and he wanted to keep that public persona, and that was, that was important to him. And I do think that there is, for a lot of the security community, I think there's a very libertarian streak in, in the security community. So a lot of what he said resonated with, with, with many people in the security community. A little overboard um, for, 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 for many, but, but I do think that, that that kind of resonation you know, was, was important, and, and there were people that agreed with a lot of what he had to say. You know, I think he had a very good stance on privacy, for example. Um, personally, I'm not a fan of cryptocurrencies, um, but that's because I deal with ransomware, and I only see cryptocurrencies being used for bad things. But, you know, so in that way, he's managed to stay relevant because he was always chasing after the next relevant thing. Um, we're almost out of time, but I want uh, Jamie to ask one more question. Um, what is the one thing you hope listeners uh, take away from this series? Oh my God. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's a really great story. Like I think what happened to John McAfee, like he came from nothing and he built this incredible company and um, it helped start you know, an industry. And I think that sort of the, the, the good parts of what he did and what he accomplished um, are, are really worth sort of paying attention to. Like he saw an opportunity, he had an idea and he went for it and he really went for it. 
Um, and I think the other part of that is, you know, it's such a slippery slope. You, you, um, you become powerful and wealthy and you are surrounded by enablers and you never hear the word no and you start to believe that you don't have to operate on the same level as everyone else and and there's a big lesson in that as well um, and you know we see that every day actually you're, you're right about that all right well th thank you alan for sitting down with us now twice if you count the podcast interview thank you alan. absolutely um, and thanks to jamie for doing what is a very awkward dance for a journalist of, of sitting up here and performing for an audience <laughs> Um, and I hope you all give a round of applause for our executive producer, Sean Wen. Yep. Um, uh, Sean came out this morning despite having a tiny baby at home and not letting her sleep. Thank you. Um, and uh, Brad and Tom and Hannah, and this is the first time we've been able to get almost the entire team together. So, awesome. uh, but most of all, Thank you to all of you for coming today. Um, and if you like the show, find us in your podcast app, subscribe, leave a review. Uh, thank you, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.